Chapter 6 of Henry Seventh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Henry Seventh by James Gaydner. Read by Caveat. Chapter 6. The War with France. So all the money spent and lives lost to preserve the independence of Brittany had been thrown away. The disappointment was undoubtedly severe, both to the English people and to their king, nor was it greatly mitigated by the attitude or circumstances of those who should have shared the mortification along with them. For though Ferdinand and Isabella may have had their own unpleasant reflections on the event, even in the midst of their triumph for the conquest of Granada, which took place at that very time, they were still too much occupied in the south of Spain to care much about the north of France. While as for Maximilian, who had most to complain of, having been doubly, indeed trebly, duped, for he had been cheated of a wife, also of a duchy, by the very same act by which his daughter had been cheated of a husband. He too had far-off interests to defend, which would make it difficult for him to act with energy. Henry, however, had not laid his plans so badly that serious loss could overwhelm all his calculations. From the first he had counted the cost of a possible breach with France, and had determined not to commit himself to do it without reasonable security for his indemnification. Something of this we have seen already as regards to assistance he had given to Brittany. But if that had been all, he had now practically lost his securities, for Concarno had already been wrested from the English before the annexation of Brittany, and it is clear that there could have been no hope of defending Morlot, though at what precise date and under what circumstances it was given up we do not find recorded. The utmost that could be done in Brittany now was to land men, ravage the country, and carry off booty, a course which was actually pursued in the summer of 1491, both in Brittany and Normandy, and as to securing a permanent position in the country, there does not seem to have been a thought. But we must not confine our view to the question between France and Brittany, if we would understand the scope of Henry's policy. War was a thing that he himself would rather have avoided, and even where it made for his own interest and for that of England, he certainly did not wish to enter upon it without allies. We must, however, go back a few years to explain how he was led into the matter and how he endeavoured to protect himself from loss. Having secured his throne to some extent by his marriage with Elizabeth of York, the birth of his son, Prince Arthur, in September 1486, was an additional source of strength to him. Not merely because his children would unite the claims of both York and Lancaster, but because there would be a useful means of strengthening foreign alliances. And the young prince could hardly have been more than a twelve-month old when a proposal was made by Henry to Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain for his marriage, as soon as he should reach a suitable age, to their infant daughter, Catherine, who was just nine months older. The Spanish sovereign, engaged in consolidating their power in the peninsula, as Henry was strengthening his own position in England, considered that such an alliance might be for their mutual benefit and sent a special envoy commissioned, among other things, to negotiate the match in concert with their resident ambassador, de Puebla. He arrived in London on the 1st of June and had audience of the king along with de Puebla and three days later, at which audience, as the latter informed Ferdinand, Henry opened his eyes wide with joy and broke into a Te Deum Ladonus, when he had found that they were armed with powers to conclude the alliance. Particulars were left to be discussed between the Spanish commissioners and others named by Henry, and after a good deal of conference, a formal agreement for the marriage was drawn up on the 7th of July. This, however, was only a general statement of conditions, as a basis for further negotiation, and an English embassy was to be dispatched to Spain to 
make more complete arrangements. The reason why the matter could not be fully concluded in England was that the Spanish ambassadors had been instructed to demand so high a price for the alliance that the English commissioners, however unwilling to break off, could not possibly agree to it. Henry was to bind himself never to aid the King of France in war, but to make war upon him whenever Ferdinand and Isabella did so, and never to make peace or truce with him till they did, in return for which engagement the Spanish sovereign only promised not to make peace with France without including England. The disparity of conditions was obvious, but it seems to have been assumed as a matter of course that England had much more need of the help of Spain than Spain could have that of England. Nor did the English commissioners dispute the assumption. They only pointed out that there was no reciprocity, and it was very inexpedient in any case to put such terms into writing. Besides, the King of England had notoriously been indebted to the French King for most important favours, and it would not be honourable for him to insert a clause expressly aimed against France. The things Ferdinand and Isabella required Henry to do, said the English commissioners, might be justified when done far better than they could be when written specific pledges. De Pueblo was not satisfied with this Jesuitical answer, and the English, to content him, took a mass book and swore before a crucifix that it was the well intention of Henry first to conclude the alliance and the marriage, and afterwards to make war upon France at the bidding of Ferdinand and Isabella. Henry afterwards told the Spanish ambassadors he had been informed of the taking of the oath and that he would quite agree to it. He seemed entirely the servant of the Spanish sovereigns, whose names he never mentioned without taking off his bonnet with conventional courtesy in the presence of their representatives. This, it should be mentioned, was at the time of Lord Woodville's unauthorised expedition to Brittany, when the feeling against France, even with his own kingdom, was such as Henry found it very difficult to control. But, as shown already, he had just extended the truce of that country to January 1490, and in the interval of 18 months many things might occur. But he was not going to make war before that date, at all events, and not without a very clear understanding with the Spanish sovereigns. Such an understanding, however, he was himself very anxious to arrive at after the Battle of Saint-Aubain and the death of the Duke of Brittany. Early in October he sent new proposals to Ferdinand touching France, and pressed for an immediate answer and in December he sent Sir Thomas Savage and Sir Richard Nanfan to Spain with full power to conclude both the political alliance and the marriage treaty. Meanwhile, Ferdinand and Isabella had sent, in answer to the remonstrances of their own ambassador, some slight modifications of the original instructions, and of the terms on which they insisted as necessary to the treaty. The great object of the Spanish sovereigns was to recover from France the counties of Roussillon and Setagny, a small patch of territory at the eastern end of the Pyrenees, which formed the key to Catalonia, and which had been mortgaged by Ferdinand's father to Louis XI, and it was hoped that Henry would enable them to achieve that object, as an alliance with the two powerful kingdoms of Castile and Aragon would strengthen his own weak position on the throne. Such an alliance, indeed, was sure to be popular in England, being quite in accordance with the traditions of national policy, and if it involved a breach with France, it might not be less popular on that account. So, As the possibility of the proposed marriage actually taking place was yet a long way off, the Spanish sovereigns resolved to see what price Henry was prepared to pay for it, and their first of mind was, as we have seen, nothing less than that the resources of England should be at their absolute control for the purpose of making war on France whenever they pleased to do so. They professed not to understand the objections raised to this in England, seeing as they only asked Henry to put in writing what he had actually declared to their ambassador in words, but to give it a greater appearance of reciprocity they would consent to Henry binding himself to make war at the request of Spain, as the Spanish sovereigns would at the request of England, 
Neither party to make peace unless France should give up to England, the duchies of Guienne and Normandy, or to Spain, the counties of Rousselon and Setagne. In the former case, Henry was free to make a separate peace. In the latter, Ferdinand and Isabella. It's needless to say that the terms were utterly unequal, as France could much more easily be induced to give up the petty districts in the Pyrenees rather than two important provinces, such as Guienne and Normandy. Nor does it appear that Henry ever authorised his ambassadors to accept such terms. Yet when Dr Savage and Sir Richard Nanfand reached the Spanish court at Medina del Campo in March 1489, it was actually embodied in a treaty between the two countries. Care was taken, indeed, that the obligations which it imposed upon Henry should only be conditional for, first, his existing truce with France was to be respected till January 1490, and secondly, at the expiration of that truce, unless England found itself immediately involved in war, either party should be at liberty to conclude a new truce with France, including the other in it. So that, in fact, it was England, not Spain, that thus held the key of the position. For if England found itself at war in January 1490, Spain was bound to aid her, at least till Rousselin and Sacagny were restored. But if England were not at war at that date, either she or Spain could conclude a new truce, provided the other party was included. Still, the state of matters in the view of actual war breaking out was not favourable in England. For the French king, if at all hard-pressed, could easily give up Rousselin and Sacagny to Spain, and so dissolve the alliance. But though the treaty was ratified by Ferdinand and Isabella at Medina del Campo, it had to be ratified by Henry. Until that was done, nothing was yet concluded. Meanwhile, England was giving real assistance both to Brittany and to Maximilian against France without violating the existing truce, and things were going on so far well that Henry thought he might fairly ask for more new stipulations with regard to the marriage, which, however, were refused. Then came the Treaty of Frankfurt, which showed the weakness of Maximilian and its acceptance by Brittany, which showed the weakness of the Duchess Anne. There was no need of Henry's ratification just then to bind Ferdinand to act along with him, for it was his clear interest to do so. And the treaty remained unratified by England till 20th of September 1490, a year and a half after its ratification by the Spanish sovereigns at Medina, when the situation had very considerably changed, and owing to the failure of Chitorado to attempt at mediation, England found itself actually at war with France, or at least on the brink of it, for a truce was presently made for the winter months, and so was immediately entitled to call upon Ferdinand and Isabella for assistance. But when he did so, he had other proposals to lay before the Spanish sovereigns at the same time. Nehemiah was carefully observing all his engagements while arming for a not far distant struggle. Throughout the year 1489, while his original truce with France still held, he was continually impressing soldiers and seamen, not for aggressive purposes, but for the defence of the duchy. So also during 1490, he sent out various commissions of array against invasion and for the defence of Calais. And on the 11th of September, just when the peace negotiations of Chicarado had definitely failed, he concluded first a treaty with Maximilian for the defence of Brittany and for mutual aid against the common enemy. This was followed by a secret compact between them, dated one day later, by which each bound himself to declare open hostility to France and to make actual war upon it at his own expense within the next three years, with the proviso that Ferdinand and Isabella should be included in these arrangements if they chose. Thus a foundation was laid for a larger and stronger alliance than that being previously existed between England and Spain alone, and proclamation was made immediately afterwards, on the 17th of September, of a league between the three powers, England, Spain and the King of the Romans, 
for mutual defence against France. This undoubtedly gratified the war spirit in England, and Henry, when three days later he ratified the Treaty of Medina del Campo, drew up and signed at the same time another treaty with Spain, for the purposes of including all the three allies under the same obligations. Now this new treaty, which was conveyed to Spain along with the ratification of the other, was certainly so more favourable to Henry as regards reciprocity, but it was a much more definite arrangement altogether, and one which could not reasonably be objected to by an ally who really intended to keep the faith. It was arranged with Ferdinand and Isabella, just as it had been with Maximilian, that if France should invade the territory either of England, Spain or Brittany, and if either Henry or Ferdinand should proclaim war against France, its consequence, and engage in actual hostilities, the other should be bound, a year after being requested to do so, to invade France at its own expense. It was further stipulated that, as the French king had actually usurped territories belonging to Spain, England and Brittany, the English and Spanish sovereigns should declare war against him within three years, and invade France personally with armies sufficient to reconquer the territories taken from them, and that they should carry on the war without a interruption for two years, and that neither should discontinue it within that time without the consent of the other. Unless, not only Spain should recover Rousselon and Sictagny, but England should also regain Normandy and Guienne. Thus, England would no longer be bound to fight merely for the benefit of Ferdinand and Isabella, only to be left in the lurch as soon as they had recovered Rousselon and Sictagny. If the alliance against France was to be effective, Henry naturally asked that it would be cordial and reciprocal. But, but would Ferdinand and Isabella accept this new treaty? when they had already got Henry committed to one more to their advantage. That remained to be seen. The document was at least a test of their sincerity, as to which Henry would may well have had misgivings. No separate peace could be made by either party if this new treaty was accepted. But Ferdinand, as a matter of fact, had been making some efforts to arrive at a separate peace already. Secret messages had passed between the two courts with proposal for an arrangement involving the abandonment of Brittany if Charles should marry Joanna, second daughter of the Spanish sovereigns. But a peace between France and England, Ferdinand sought by all means to oppose, and when Chicarato was endeavouring to negotiate it, he urged his ambassador at Rome to get the Pope to recall the nuncio's colleague, Flores, and to persuade his holiness that mediation between France and Spain was much more important than between France and England, for peace between the latter two powers would immediately follow if France and Spain were reconciled. Henry perhaps did not know the full extent of Ferdinand's double dealing, but he knew that the Spanish ambassadors in Brittany were at that very moment ostensibly disobeying the instructions they had received and had just asked to excuse them to their own sovereigns for reasons which he professed to be satisfied. For withdrawing the Spanish forces from the duchy, who would not be wanted, the ambassadors urged during the winter, as a truce had been agreed to, but they would be sent back in the spring. It is needless to say that the new treaty was not accepted by Spain, and for a thousand plausible reasons the troops were not sent back. Before the return of spring, Nantes had fallen. The Spanish sovereigns were very sorry and intended to redress the wrong. They professed to regard their affair as their own, but still they had no means of immediate action, and must trust to Henry and Maximilian, who were near at hand. They were most urgent that Henry should pour fresh troops into the duchy and make war upon the French, with all his power, and as soon as they themselves had secured their conquest in Granada, they would do their utmost to assist. Henry must have seen pretty clearly how little help he was likely to get from Spain, but he was already involved in the responsibilities of war and was still busy with the commissions of array, raising men to repel invasion, which was expected all through the spring, 
and impressing sailors for a fleet to fight the king's enemies at sea. In May, he receives an application from Maximilian and Anne, as king and queen of the Romans, asking aid against the French and promising repayment of expenses. In July, having apparently obtained the sanction of a great council to a step which was, strictly speaking, illegal, he appointed commissioners throughout the country for a benevolence towards the war. In October, he called Parliament together and, declaring to them his intention of invading France in person, obtained further a grant of two fifteenths and tenths to furnish the expedition properly. And having so far prepared for the struggle, he next month made another effort to fix Ferdinand to some precise terms of cooperation. On the 22nd of November, he drew up two new treaties with Spain, the one binding both parties formally to declare war on France before the 15th of April following, and to begin actual hostilities by the 15th of June at the latest, the other binding Ferdinand and Isabella to send their daughter Catherine to England as soon as Prince Arthur should complete his 14th year, and to pay the stipulated diary of 200,000 crowns for her. Thus war and matrimony will want to go keen hand in hand, the one a pledge for the other. Matrimony, however, had the advantage of war as regards France, for exactly a fortnight after this treaty was drawn up, the Duchess Anne was married to Charles VIII, and the independence of Brittany was gone past recovery. Past all recovery, that at least was plain, and however little men might relish the fact, one great cause of the war had already disappeared. True, the injury might be avenged, but what prince was prepared to do so? Not Ferdinand and Isabella, who made no haste to sign the new treaty, or even fulfil the old. But they were still busy with the Moors in Granada. Not even Maximilian, the most deeply injured of all, for though he had by this time succeeded in the east of Europe, and secured his right to the Archduchy of Austria, he was still crippled in his resources. Austria was exhausted and could yield him nothing. The Low Countries were not even yet obedient to him. Henry alone was prepared and intended to fulfil his engagements. He, however, gave both Ferdinand and Maximilian every opportunity of doing so, and delayed his own expedition against France as long as he safely could to enable them to cooperate. At last, when the best part of the year, 1492, had already passed, he issued proclamations on the 2nd of August for everyone able to serve in war to be ready at an hour's warning. Later in the month, to assist Maximilian as well as himself, he sent a fleet under Sir Edward Poynings to besiege Sluys, in concert with troops by land brought by Albert, Duke of Saxony, and their operations were so effectual that in a couple of months the town with its two castles surrendered to the former Duke of Saxony, the latter to Sir Edward Poynings. Even the siege of this town, quite apart from its surrender, did not much assist the war against France, for Sluys was not only the heart of the rebellion against Maximilian's authority, but was also a nest of pirates checking the approaches to Antwerp, and indeed to the whole of the Brabant and the Low Countries generally. The siege was still going on in September, when the king, having collected a large army in London, marched towards the seaside. It is said he received letters from France offering terms when on his way to Sandwich, but of this, of course, no one then knew. He crossed to Calais on the 6th of October, no doubt to the great astonishment of many that he would begin an invasion so very late in the year. Here ambassadors that he had sent to Maximilian returned from Flanders with the unpleasant information, you may be sure not unexpected by the king, that the king of the Romans was quite unprepared to join in an expedition against France. His will was good, but neither Austria nor Flanders provided him with the means of action, and he must leave Henry to effect what he could do by himself. Rumours too could not fail to arrive that Ferdinand and Isabella, instead of being faithful to England, were at that very moment negotiating a separate peace with France, 
and would have closed the bargain if Charles would have consented readily to grant them what they so much desired. Still, the army was not disheartened, and presently sat down before Boulogne. The town was well fortified and could hardly have been taken without much bloodshed. For some time, the English battered the walls, and in the course of their operations, they lost one brave captain, Sir John Savage. But before matters had gone very far, proposals for peace, which Sir Escudis had been authorised to make, were laid before the captains of the English army, who, considering the terms, the time of year, the difficulty of victualling the forces in winter, and the hopelessness of getting aid from any ally, advised the king to accept them. Charles, in fact, agreed to pay the whole debt which was to have fallen on Maximilian, amounting to 620,000 crowns, due to the king from the Anne of Brittany, for his assistance in the defence of the duchy, and two years of arrears of the pension promised by Louis XI to King Edward IV at the Peace of Armines, to altogether 745,000 crowns, which he engaged to discharge at the rate of 50,000 francs a year. The terms were accepted and a treaty was signed at Etape on the 3rd of November, which was confirmed by Charles three days later. The English army then withdrew to Calais and soon after returned to England. The peace was evidently made upon the model of the Peace of Armines. Charles VIII only followed the policy of his father in buying off English aggression. For however hopeless from an English statesman's point of view might be the project of reconquering France, the landing of a foreign enemy would have stirred up internal commotions in the kingdom, which had been the chief aim both of Louis and of Charles to consolidate and strengthen. It would, moreover, have altogether frustrated a design on which Charles had already set his heart, the invasion of Italy. So he was glad, like his father, to buy a peace with England. He had not the same occasion to come immediately to terms with Ferdinand, who gained little by his separate negotiation with France until some time after the peace with England had been settled and Charles at length agreed also to his demand for the restoration of Roussillon and Sertagny. Henry had strictly fulfilled his arrangements to all foreign princes. Peace was scarcely popular with his own subjects, who had been heavily taxed for what was not a war, not even much of a campaign, merely to fill the king's coffers. Indeed, some of the captains in the army had mortgaged their estates to supply him with money for the expedition, hoping that it would have been a great opportunity for themselves to win their spurs. There could be no doubt, however, that it was for the best interest of England, as well as France, that the war between them should cease, and even against the will of his people, Henry had secured their good. End of chapter 6